back everyone to 10G for your success and wealth. I received many requests to do Q&A sessions and so here it is. I'm going to implement that new segment into each upcoming episode where I'll include your voicemail questions in your own words and answer your questions as well as continue to bring you the great informative content here on 10G. To submit your question, please go to speakpipe.com forward slash 10G and just look for the link to everything on the episode description sections. If your question is featured on an episode, I'll send you a free 10G local sticker. How about that? In this episode, I'm going to tell you a personal story about my encounter that I had with a con artist who tried to extract $25,000 from me. His story was that he needed that amount to save his house from foreclosure and keep his family from being thrown out into the streets. That was the total amount that he was behind on his mortgage payments, or so he said. So how was it that I got tangled up and intertwined with this person in his dilemma? He was a childhood friend of mine that was cooking up a complete swindle that almost turned deadly. I'm going to tell you what my outcome was and how I stopped him from killing me. It's a lot easier to fool someone than to convince them they were fooled. That quote is most often attributed to Mark Twain. Whether he actually said it or not is not important. What matters is its truthfulness. I can't recall the comedian's name that said he goes to Vegas every few months to visit his money. Well, at least he has a place to go cry. But if you let yourself become a victim, you won't. Because your money will vanish completely from planet Earth. Because con artists are masters at the disappearing act. One of the biggest challenges I've had in my life was talking a friend out of killing me. I believe he was angry because I refused to lend him $25,000 after I found out that he had lied about his past due mortgage payments. He owed that money to a mafia loan shark and the full payment was due. He and his family had to move out of their house and go into hiding. But as I explained it to him, I didn't have all that amount at that time. And I would in turn have to borrow almost half to complete the 25000 But what angered me the most is not that he lied to me about everything, but that he would put his family into such danger. What I found out later was that he blamed me for having to take his family on the run by me not coming through with that cash. And he wasn't going down without taking me with him. Several months later, he called me and we spoke on the phone for over an hour. The kids are getting used to it. But my wife is having a hard time, he answered when I asked him how he'd been doing and holding up while being on the run. During that call, we eventually patched up our differences that were caused by all of that, or so I thought. Growing up together, uh, we often went to shooting ranges to practice, and he invited me one day, and I agreed to go. It's fine. I always make sure I'm not being followed. He said when I asked him if it was safe for him to drive around. We eventually agreed that I would pick him up. He had a well-thought-out plan to make it look like an accident by luring me into an indoor shooting range on an early Saturday morning. He told me that his friend was the manager and we would come in an hour early before the weekend crowd showed up. I picked him up from his hotel room, said hello to his wife and kids that stayed in the room. As we drove to the shooting range, we talked about our friends we'd grown up with 
and the fun times we had as kids. I'd known him since we were around seven years old. My friend grew up poor and never really had the things the rest of us had. But my mom and dad would frequently invite him over to dinner because they knew what his home life was like. His mom was a constant drunk, on welfare, and always in need of help. He was able to survive that by breaking that cycle of poverty into his adulthood and getting a great paying job before he got married and started his family. When we arrived at the shooting range and walked inside, something wasn't right. All the camera monitors were turned off. The manager was there, but I remember that he never looked me in the eyes, even though I tried to make small talk with him as he registered us in. I noticed that my friend was sweating profusely and became very nervous. His right hand was shaking as he signed the waiver. At this point, I still didn't have a clue what was about to happen because there wasn't any reason for me to ever suspect what my childhood friend was about to do. In the shooting range, my friend told me to go first as he loaded his gun in the lane to my right side. So, I began loading my 9mm Beretta 92F semi-automatic, and then I immediately felt the ice-cold barrel of his 357 Magnum at the back of my head and his left hand on the back of my neck as he leaned me forward slightly to put me off balance. Don't move, he said. Why? I replied. The question was not to his command not to move. It was why he had decided to kill me. He understood what I was asking, and I remember he began breathing heavily and in silence. The cliche that your mind is racing at a thousand miles per hour when your life is about to end is absolutely true. My past, present, and future flashed through my eyes. In a second, then a burst of survival instinct hit me as a cold sweat ran through my body. I only have a second to do something, I thought to myself. Your kids are going to miss you. I told him. I was trying to get him to understand that if I'm done, his problems were just beginning. I then heard him trying to catch his breath as he began to hyperventilate. I sensed that he was struggling with the decision to become a murderer. Maybe my comment about his kids was a reminder to him that he eventually would end up in prison after the investigation and interrogation of the manager that somehow and for some reason a person that I'd never met before, had decided to become his accomplice. At this point, it was a race between his fat trigger finger and the quickest move I had to save my life. There wasn't any time to figure out what had caused him to do this. He then lifted the gun barrel slightly from the back of my head, and that's when I decided to make my move. I quickly raised my right hand and slid it between my head and his three fifty-seven Magnum and slapped his hand to the right. He was still able to fire off a shot, and I remember hearing a sizzling sound as the bullet flew out of the gun barrel at supersonic speed and feeling the wind from the bullet as it disturbed the air next to the right side of my face. My eardrum is still damaged to this day because of that gunshot that went off like a cannon. Then the fight to save my life started. I leaned into him heavily, and we both went down to the ground. With my left hand, I grabbed the gun and I was able to slide it forward and off his hand. So now I had the advantage. I was on top of him and began punching him in the face with all my strength 
as I held on tightly to his right hand so he couldn't grab his gun again. His left hand was trying to block the punches, but my adrenaline was so high that my punches were going right through. My friend was never a nimble person growing up, always falling off his bike, his skateboard, and whatever else we were doing. Just walking on the sidewalk could be a challenge for him. Once, we were jumping from a second floor balcony into the swimming pool just below the balcony walkway in the apartment complex we grew up in. And as he stepped over the railing, he slipped and fell down from the second level and just missed the edge of the swimming pool. He landed on the entire right side of his body. And the sound he made when he hit the water was like a baseball bat striking a tree. Help me, he cried out after crawling from the pool. Everyone stood there laughing at him once again, just like when he had flown over the super wide handlebars on his Frankenstein bike that he had put together from whatever he could find. We were riding our bikes throughout the apartment complex where we lived, down the middle driveway, through the hallways, over the walkways, and as we approached the carports, his overextended handlebars couldn't clear the passageway from the apartment complex hallway to the carports. His bike stopped in place at the doorway as he went flying over the handlebars and into an empty parking spot that was dirtied with motor oil. Everyone, once again, stood there laughing. Another time, our football got stuck in a tree, and we sent him up there to retrieve it. And sure enough, he got stuck high up in that tree. Many times as kids, we don't think about the consequences of what we do. We're just enjoying the moment. One of our other childhood friends started throwing mud balls at him, so of course, everyone else joined in. I stood there helpless and didn't know what to do. The barrage lasted for at least 10 minutes until one of the parents that heard the commotion came out and chased us all away. My friend had mud everywhere, up his nose, in his eyes, in his mouth, and one of the kids had such stunning accuracy that he managed to get a mud ball into the back of his pants and down into his underwear. It took several of the adults so long to get him down from that tree that he still had a dried out piece of mud stuck to the top of his head when he finally came down. None of that was any reason for him to try and kill me, because I never bullied him or made fun of him. I had always considered him a great friend and was always happy to hang out with him and I really enjoyed our time growing up together. My rage was taking over, and I was punching him so hard that I could see his eyes starting to roll back, and so I stopped. You fucking asshole, I screamed at him. He had blood coming from his nose and the corner of his mouth. I then stood up and quickly grabbed his gun, grabbed my gun and my gun case, and ran to the lobby of the shooting range. And that would be the last time I would see my childhood friend. To my surprise, the manager of that business that had let us in early was gone and nowhere to be seen. I then ran to the parking lot while still holding everything in my hands, and the parking lot was also empty except for my pickup. The clerk clearly didn't want to witness a murder that was about to happen, and since my friend was going to make it look like an accident, he'd probably had second thoughts and had decided to leave. There are several thousand accidental deaths at shooting ranges every year nationwide, and it would not have been a unique occurrence early that Saturday morning. He might have gotten away with killing me. I jumped into my truck 
threw the loaded guns on the passenger seat and sped out of that parking lot so traumatized that I went through a red light down the street. I continued driving on the freeway back to my house, but I was so disturbed about what had just happened that I continued driving in a daze. I went past the exit to my house and ended up driving all the way to Santa Monica Beach without realizing it. The distance from the shooting range to the beach is about a 40 minutes drive. And because my mind was going 100 miles per hour, that drive seemed like only five minutes. I wasn't sure what to do next at that point. Should I call the police or go back to the shooting range? I thought to myself. I decided to go home. I covered the guns on the passenger seat with my jacket and drove home carefully so I wouldn't get stopped and have to explain the firearms next to me. I've never told anyone, including my wife and kids, about what happened to me on that day. This episode is the first time I've spoken out about what happened. It's been many years since that happened, and I still haven't been able to figure out why my friend had decided to kill me. Over the years, I've gone from anger to pity to revenge, and in the end, I did nothing about it. For many years, I put it out of my mind, and then I would remember again in vivid detail each second of what happened. Growing up, I never bullied him, never made fun of his impoverished upbringing, and my parents were always on the lookout for him like their own son. I never reported him to the police. I still haven't to this day, and I'm not sure why. I've never reached out to him and don't intend to. Honestly, I don't need any answers from him, and maybe that's why I've been able to heal from his failed attempt to take my life. It's a few minutes in my life that I've worked to erase. I got lucky that day. In the next episode, I'm going to tell you the story of another friend of mine that was able to take an opportunity that came knocking at his door and turned it into a stream of continuous income that made him a multimillionaire just after he was laid off from his job and on the brink of becoming homeless. That will begin the series of episodes that I'll dive deep into how to set up multiple sources of income. And I will begin giving you the exact details on how to start making 10G weekly, which is the premise for the entire channel. I will also get into detail on exactly how I did it and why it's so important to do so to get you that life-changing pinnacle of 10G weekly. Once again, I want to invite you to participate in the new Q&A segments by going to speakpipe.com forward slash 10G and leave your question or comment there. And if it's featured on an episode, I'll send you a free 10G logo sticker just for taking the time to participate. Look for all the links in the episode descriptions on all the podcasting platforms. If you found this content to be helpful, please follow, like, and share, and consider becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash 10G. 10G, exactly as it's on the logo. Thank you for listening with an open mind, and thank you for listening to the end. I'll catch you on the next one. Peace.